to the Kerygma Chronicles, a podcast about creating an empowered ministerial identity and developing the confidence to fully step into God's vision for your life and your ministry. Each week, we'll discuss the highs and lows of ministry shared through the stories of dynamic ministry leaders and my own experiences. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Jameson Gadsden. Ladies, I am so excited today because I am here with one of my close friends, the good Reverend Dr. Natasha Jamison Gatson. I'm really excited to talk to her today. There's so much that we have to talk about. You know, we have these conversations all the time on the phone. And every time we have them, we're like, you know, we just need to go ahead and record this. We need to record this. This is good. Somebody needs to hear this. And so we have finally, after years of saying this, we finally have the opportunity to record our conversation. And I'm so excited that she is joining us today. So let's get right in. Hello, Dr. Gatson. And how are you doing? Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Trying to be like you, but I'm good. <laughs> okay. I hope you I hope you more saved. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to be more saved. Influence people and you know, do all the good stuff that you do naturally. Child, again, I hope you more saved. <laughs> <laughs> Let us pray for us all. Let right, us pray right. for us all. What have you been up to lately? Well, a few different things. Right now, my focus has been on getting ready to launch in the work that I'm, I'm beginning in two weeks with the Duke Demon Cohort 2020. The incoming Duke Demon Cohort, I will serve as their spiritual mentor. God help them. And, and you are a graduate of Duke. And I am a graduate of Duke of the very same program. And so my work, what I hope to accomplish with them is to be a safe space for them to process the experience, to be a place where they can come to learn to advocate for themselves while in the program, to be the person to help them reframe their experiences, frame or reframe their experiences in light of their ministerial context, and really to help them identify tools and also to provide them with tools to help them navigate the program and navigate the integration of what they're learning with their ministerial context. So it should be very interesting. I think it's right in my wheelhouse because it is the combination of the mentoring piece and the academic piece, except I don't have to grade a whole lot of papers. Right. <laughs> right. As you were talking, I was going to say that, that this is such a natural fit for you because it's just so customary to who you are. And it reminded me of something that you say about yourself. And let me know if I'm saying it wrong, but you always say that you are, that you are a midwife. And so you are, you know, really good at really helping to birth people into their purpose, into their call. You are the person, goodness, it gets to my nerves, you know that, who would cost somebody at, at a cookout or at dinner to try to find out <laughs> what, what, what God is calling them to do and to try to help them, you know, to start living that out. And 
I remember we were at Christmas and I'm like, I am you because you are doing it to my guests. And I was like, really? It's Christmas day. Let the people have oh, a moment. That was, oh, that was awesome. And I mean, I got so excited about your guests. I need to follow. In fact, when we finish, we need to follow up on that. <laughs> Yes, yes, I will. I will give you the context so we can follow up. But, you know, it's just natural to who you are. And I think in this day and age, that's just so awesome because we are so self-aggrandized and it's all about how can I live out my stuff and how can I do me that sometimes we very rarely stop to help the other person out. So I think the fact that people like you have that call and is not ignoring it, but really are intentional about fostering and developing others. And not just people you know, right? Just like I said, we were at Christmas and it was someone she had never met before. So it's not just people you know, but everyone that you come in contact with because you have that desire. Where does that come from? It comes from having had it and having not had it. So it comes from having had it when I accepted my call and when I entered the ministerial process, I was blessed to have two awesome mentors, the Reverend Dr. Debye Babu Thomas, who was my assistant pastor at the time when I accepted my call. I was serving as her armor bearer at the time when I accepted my call. And she was an incredible mentor. She, men- she ministered identity to me. I've said that for years. She helped me to understand that there was something inside of me. And she did it without coddling. You know, she, she's not softies like us, but she was amazing. And then right on the other side of saying yes to that and starting my um, graduate program and all of that, then Dr. Marsha Klingscales, the Reverend Dr. Marsha Klingscales, who was not only my mentor in ministry and, uh, and a spiritual mother, but also my mentor on the academic side. So she groomed me academically and she also groomed me ministerially and in important ways, ways that transcended structure, right? She taught me about one-on-one ministry, interpersonal relationships, stopping and hearing the story and the lived experience of other people and ministering to the tears you see. I remember at the altar, there was an altar call. There were people at the altar crying. And she said that she was totally disturbed because the ministers who were ministering where we were did not have the response that she thought they should have. She said, because when you see tears fall at the altar, that's pain. That and you, and you can't ignore that. And so having had it, that's where it comes from. But then also have those times and seasons that we didn't have it, right? And trying to figure out who we were in ministry and trying to grow and wanting to grow to perfect our gifts. I think that that's, yeah, yeah. wanting to perfect our gifts. And not having the leadership or the person or people to even take five minutes to want to help you perfect your gift. Or maybe being so insecure about who they could see you are that they didn't want to help you become that. And so having both of those experiences, having had it and then not having it, made me commit to doing that in every setting at all times. It's funny because it doesn't matter the role. (laughs) 
ultimately, that's my work and my purpose. No matter what the title, what the role, we could be folding napkins. And eventually, that is where we will land. Yes. Can we talk about how how we met? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> and I know it seems like a crazy transition, but I promise, you know, to everyone, it will make sense as we tell the story. So <laughs> we were serving together. We, we attended the same church. She was on the ministerial staff. I wasn't. I, I'm actually, I think it's joined earlier that year or something, but we were serving in the youth ministry together. And mm-hmm. I was kind of serving behind the scenes. So I had went through just a lot. I'd been through a lot. I had just had a kid a couple months before out of wedlock. I was kind of going through that stage where I hadn't forgiven myself and did not want to receive God's forgiveness because I felt like he should have been punishing me. Now, so as I'm, I'm working with that internally, at the same time, the tug of my call, because I was in ministry before, called since I was 16, the tug of my call and just my desire for worship and fellowship was still pulling at me. And so finally, you know, I started going back to church and I started getting involved, but very much behind the scenes. And the Lord was just dealing with me. Again, it was, it was a tug. It was a tug. You know, now I had the worship. I had the fellowship. But the tug of the call did not go away. And I'm like, well, God, I'm serving. I'm, you know, I'm doing, you know, I'm loving you. I'm serving people. I'm doing what you want me to do. And, but no, the Lord was not satisfied. It's like, you know, I'm calling you to mourn. And so I will never forget the Lord dropped in my spirit to talk to you. I'll tell you now, you, um... <laughs> You walked up to me after the youth mm-hmm. service. You said, Reverend Gadsden, we need to talk. <laughs> and you know, because you had been running the show behind the scenes and, and you were giving directions and we were just kind of like, okay, tell us where to go. You know, I said, okay. And then I said, well, what do we need to talk about? And you said, me, of course. <laughs> now, I don't remember saying that. This is where she exaggerates the story, but okay. Okay, I'm telling you the truth, okay? Not my truth, but the truth. So just so you know, and anyone who has the privilege of meeting Tana Abraham in person will know that I am not lying. And that's where we begin. And so when I called you, when we finally spoke, I think I hinted or about mystery, and it's like this light bulb went off in you. (laughs) And it's never turned off since. This light bulb went off and you said, wait a minute, let's go back to this. Because of course, you know me, I kind of glossed over it. Let's go back to this. And so, you know, we were talking um, and you asked me some questions. But the thing that I liked is ever since then, that time, that one phone call that you always checked in on me, you always, you know, did a status check. Hey, how? And not in a pressuring way, right? Like, hey, when are you going to move forward with this? But just in a, hey, where are you right now? How are things going? You know, what are your goals? You know, what is keeping you from that? What are your plans? And and just, just continuously being intentional about checking up with me. And that, I think, was so instrumental in me eventually stopping uh, the track race and, mm-hmm. you know, surrendering mm-hmm. to God and moving forward in ministry. And so that is something I'm, I'm truly grateful for. And of course, our relationship grew into a friendship. Um, and now you're stuck with me and my many Christmas and birthday lists. But I'm just so grateful because I know 
if it wasn't for that, and of course God had, uh, had other ways, but I'm just so grateful that you didn't just stop at that one conversation, but you continue to follow up. And I think that's just so important because we have people who are dealing with so yeah. much. And I called you last yeah. week, you know, and I was just like, oh my God, this is on my heart because I'm encountering women, particularly women in ministry, but women in general, uh, mm-hmm. women in the business place, you know, women in, in, in various endeavors, and they are looking for that person to come and to mentor them, to help them, you know, and so many of them are experienced in hurt because the people that they thought would come, the people that they thought would feed into them, would pour into them, would minister to them, would help them in their broken areas. It's like they might come for a second and then they disappear, you know, or they don't come at all. Or just like you say, you know, all all these other nuances kind of keep them from like they might only minister you but minister to you but only to a certain point because god forbid that you end up on a bigger platform than them or god forbid that you end up in a bit in a better position than them and so can we talk about this a little bit can we just talk about the nuances (laughs) in these mentoring relationships so for a long time i was willing to encourage but i've resisted taking on a mentee, if you will. And I, of course, do not assign that to myself. I let whomever assign that to me. But because of the fact that I had seen so many people burned by their mentors, and I had seen women and men, but because I am a woman, I had seen women use that mentoring relationship to keep people where they wanted them to be. I knew that I was still growing in ministry and I still am right now, but I did not ever at any point want my insecurities to manifest in a way that would hurt or hold anybody else back. So I was resistant, but the Lord reminded me that I had good mentoring. I had great mentoring. And so I had a responsibility to make myself available to whoever he sent my way to do that. And and it took on different forms, but in reference to what you have clearly articulated about what we see, I think that the one thing that I have come to understand, probably even in the years since we have moved on to other places, is that When we see stuff like that, when we see women, and I'm dealing specifically with women, when we see women who only mentor to a certain point or only mentor so far, or they don't want to mentor you at all, or they only have a relationship to see what you're doing, you are looking at unhealed wounds Mm, that they have dealt with that's being projected onto you. And when you are green, when you are just coming in, when you are trying to say, God, is it real? Did you really call me? Am I, I'm not worthy. I'm not this. I'm not that. And then you have the one who has all of the gifts, who has all of the skills, who is everything that you think that you want to grow into. And then they come and they put their foot on your neck. Then that can destroy you early on because you don't have the experience to say, oh, that's a wound. And that's being played out on me. 
it took years before I, I realized that that was what was happening. But we got to get healed. You know, I mean, you and I talk about this all the time. We we go in our private closets, acknowledge our shortcomings, acknowledge where we are jealous, envious, where we are feeling insecure. We do that kind of work behind the scenes so that when we come together and come in the presence of other women, I am not now mean and nasty because you have worked out for six months and your body is banging and I'm still carrying around an extra 10 pounds. Talk that's not your issue. <laughs> you know, that's not your fault. I need to do the work, right? right. And so right. it goes with ministry and anything else that we put our hands to or God has purposed us to do. I can't hate on you for the work that you are doing to walk in that which God has put on you, right? Put on your life. I can be encouraged by it. I can be inspired by it. And I can encourage you in the work of it and then go home and deal with myself and my issues and why I have or have not moved forward in whatever it is that God told me to do. Because if my name is on it, then there's no way for anybody else to steal it from me. And if your name is on it, there's no way for me to steal it from you. And the truth is, there is room for everybody. Uh, There's room for everybody. Another thing is, I think we lose sight of the reason why we're doing this in the first place. Because the reason why we're here, the reason why we're having this conversation The reason why we said yes to Jesus, the reason why we serve the way we serve, the reason why we study the way we study and we lay before the Lord is so that someone can come into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the number one reason. Not for a platform, not for preaching engagements, not for opportunities, not even for a check. Right. Those things are wonderful. And God rewards us in, in a bunch of different ways that include those things. But when we lose sight of why we are doing this, then we get caught up in trying to make sure we get the best opportunities and all of that. So I think between the wounds and not having sight of the telos, the the end goal, that perverts our call. It twists what we are supposed to do. It twists the assignment. And I think that we are seeing so much of that. And for so long, we ignored it because We were so excited to see women on the platform, women out front, because we have to fight so hard to get in those spaces. Well, I don't want to be in that space unhealed. Yes. I want to be healed. When God elevates me, I want to be healed so that there is not somebody sitting in their house on the phone with their girlfriend saying, yeah, she sure can preach or she sure can teach or she sure she sure can exegete a text, but she is so mean. Mm-hmm. I met her at backstage or, you know, behind the pulpit or in the pastor's office and she act like she couldn't even speak. I, I don't want that to be anybody's testimony when they meet me. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. There's something that you said and I wrote it down. I didn't want my insecurities to manifest in a way that held anyone back. I think that is so powerful. And you talk about, you know, acknowledging that, knowing that we all have it, right? We all have it. It might be weight. It might be hair length. It might be hair texture. It might be clothes. It might, we all have something. And acknowledging that we all do. And just like you said, going home in your closet, in your prayer closet, and dealing with it and handling it in whatever way you, you are, 
rather than bleeding out mm-hmm. of the people. But yeah. this also speaks to, I think, an issue of identity. And mm-hmm. even those who we see that seemingly are doing well, seemingly are in great platforms, seemingly have great positions, you know, are struggling with issues of identity. And that is, I believe, coming off in those ways, right? It's manifesting itself in those ways. And so, you know, I'm realizing that this issue of identity is, it's much bigger than we've acknowledged in the past. And Mm -hmm. I know for me, that's something that I had to grab a hold of. It was not until I grabbed a hold of my identity, who I am, who God has created me to be unique to me only, that it's okay. (laughs) You know, Um, it wasn't until I grabbed a hold of that, that I think I was really able to embrace my true purpose and to move forward. And so uh, that's another thing that I would say I've I've attributed to to you and to our relationship. And that's something that you've helped me with. And I've I've not told the story on this platform, but I've always told the story of... uh, So I think earlier we talked about the first time we met, actually met, but the first time I saw you was on a Sunday morning. I think it was my second Sunday visiting. It was my second Sunday attending that church. And so you, I was sitting out there with my little baby in his carrier and you walked on to the pulpit. And I remember like, I was like, oh my God, oh my God. That's it. That's it. And so you, (laughs) I know I'm animated. It's just who I am. Anyway, so I was like, oh my God, that's it. That's it. That's what I want to look like. That's who I want to look like. And it wasn't that I wanted to look like you per se with everything you had on. It was your freedom to express who you are in what you had on. And I remember you had this, this really nice dress on, very appropriate to your knee. You know, you had your stockings and your four inch stilettos. You had your leather jacket. You had a cute headband and your hoops. And I'm not a hoops fan. So, so it's not even that I was, I wanted to be like you and dress like you with every detail, but just the fact that you were able to walk out there and own who you were, not who others were trying to tell you you needed to be. And that was something that I had struggled with my entire life, being called to ministry at 16. And any little thing I did, you know, it was just like, oh, there goes Tana being fast. If my skirt was the right size and not two sizes bigger, oh, there goes Tana being fast. And so I remember in my early young adult stages, I struggled with trying to figure out who I am supposed to be as a minister. What image am I supposed to present? And, you know, when I went to Bible school, the joke at Bible school was um, amongst the guys was, have you ever seen Tana's knees? You know, because I, I went through a stage where I never wore anything that wasn't a midi. So it was a midi and below, nothing above a midi. So you never saw my knees. I went through that phase. I went mm-hmm. through the phase where I didn't wear any jeans. You might on a good day catch me in some khakis, but I didn't wear any jeans. I was the girl at school who was at the bo- the basketball game with khakis and a sweater set, okay? A sweater set. Because I thought I had to present a particular image in order for me to walk in my call. And it was something that I struggled with forever. So when I saw you that day, I was just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> it was just 
was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, that's it. That's it. And so that was just really powerful for me. And so now if anyone who knows me know, I am full on, you know, eccentric dresser. I love fashion. My shoes are typically purple or orange and not black and blue. I like color right now. I have on bright pink and, (laughs) you know, and so I have since come to own who I am, but that has not come without its struggles, you know? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 That, that certainly has not come without its struggles, but what keeps me in that space where I don't fall back into that rut of trying to be someone else or trying to be that image that someone else thinks I should portray Mm -hmm. is it's me, (laughs) not me self-centeredly, but remembering what I went through before that and remembering how, you know, how I felt. And so thinking about those like me who are coming up in ministry, who might look different, dress different, have blonde hair, you know, have, you know what I mean? And just who are expressing themselves differently, letting them know that it's okay to be uniquely you and walk in, in, in the call that God has on your life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is a tremendous blessing to arrive at that place. Yes. I mean, it's yes. so freeing because when we talk about ministerial identity, identity in general, ministerial identity in particular, when we start a ministerial process, depending on where you start that process with denomination, with church and all that, I think most of the time across the board, there is an intentional attempt to strip your individual identity, Mm. right? This is dangerous ground, but it is akin to what we experienced as a people when we were brought here in chains, right? Changing of the names, separating of the families and all of that. There is almost an intentional, and I, and I didn't see it until I look back in hindsight. It was almost an intentional breaking away, tearing you from your individual mm-hmm. identity. On one hand, we know that when we are made new in Christ, we put down our old identity for a new identity in Christ. We got that. But for real, though, by the time I say yes to Jesus and I come into a ministerial process, the presumption should be that I'm wholly saved and sanctified, or at least I said, yes, Jesus is Lord, right? Right. So we've already got the new identity in Christ's part. If, if we don't, then you don't need to be letting me into a process. Right. <laughs> and then there is some intentionality to it that I appreciate because a lot of times when we say yes to Jesus, not necessarily you and me, mm-hmm. but some people, when they say yes, it's like, I'm anointed, I'm gifted, I'm here, what's up? And it's like, no, boo, sit down. You right. are a voice crying out in the wilderness saying, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And I think that sometimes we got to learn to lay down our ambitions because we don't watch um, so-and-so, the Reverend Dr. So-and-so blow up and we think we the next one, right? We got to lay down, we got to lay down thinking that we the only one who can preach, the only one with a sweet hoop, the only one with sweet exegesis. No, baby, there's one right behind you that's, that can do it better than you and quicker than you, right? And those things we have to lay down. But, I don't think that has to come at the expense of the crushing of people's spirits. Yeah. So that's number one. I think we come into that. And when we come into a process, that's the first thing that we are met with. Then we are also met with 
whatever our traditions are, whatever they have been for whatever your particular ministerial context is, people have an idea of what a minister should be. And just like we had, I went through the same phase with the long skirts and and all of that. I mean, I look like, I don't know, Juanita Bynum circa 1999 or whatever, until the husband was like, really, is this what we're doing? And I mean, that wasn't even me. The thing about identity, and particularly uh, ministerial identity, pastoral identity, and we use those interchangeably for this conversation, some scholars suggest that it's co-created, right? Mm -hmm. So your identity is not shaped or formed in isolation. It's shaped in community. It's shaped in interpersonal relationship. I become pastor to the extent that you allow me to pastor you and be your pastor, Mm -hmm. right? And people, you form who you become in ministry as a minister in collaboration with the people and how they receive your service and how they receive you. And that is helpful and dangerous at the same time. It's helpful in that you are serving the need that you are sent to serve. So you're numbing, thinking that you're doing something all great when that's not what God called you to do. That's not what you've been sent there to do. But it's dangerous because if you are not careful, it leaves you at the mercy of who other people say you are. So instead of you telling them who who you are, they're telling you who you are. And I don't think that that is God's intent either. There's a particular theory of communication that I won't go into all the particulars, but it really helped me understand my particular walk and experience when it comes to this whole piece, when we talk about the appearance, when we talk about the earrings, the hair and all of that, we have our enacted identity because there are different aspects of identity, your personal identity, how you see yourself, communal identity, how the community sees you interpersonal, how your identity is shaped by relationship, you know, so that's why you have couples who have an identity, you and I as friends have an identity, a shared identity and all of that. And an acted identity is specifically what you are talking about when you talk about how I appeared to you that day and how since how you have appeared to other young women who have seen you walk in your identity, right? And our enacted identity is how we express who we are as ministers. For some, it's sitting in the pulpit. For some, it's their vestments. For some, it's wearing a preaching jacket or a particular kind of suit. And I made a decision that my enacted identity, although I didn't have the language, that I was going to be myself. Because my father in ministry said, God calls us with our personalities and he works through them because he didn't design us all to be the same. Mm -hmm. So he works through your particular personality in your preaching, in your appearance, in how you show up in the world, right? I know that's true because the first time I walked into the doors of Payne Memorial AME Church back in 99, there was a woman preaching because I was late. I didn't know what time service started. I thought it started at Black Church Hour at 11, but in the summer they started at 10. The woman on the pulpit was preaching. She had on this cute little African pants set and her hair was up and a little down in the front and she was gorgeous. And I said, there's no way that could be the pastor because I have never seen a woman 
who looked like that in ministry. I just hadn't been exposed yeah. to that. And as it turns out, it was the Reverend Dr. Soonaby Bishop Vashti Murphy McKenzie. And she modeled for me walking fully in your brilliance as a woman and as a minister, and that the two are not mutually exclusive. And it wasn't just her. It was it was walking into a church where the pulpit was filled with women who all looked different from one another, right? That gave me the freedom to be who I wanted to be. And of course, I went through the, the phase when I wanted to say yes, and I wanted to be what I thought a minister should be. But then ultimately, I had to see that a minister should be whoever God calls me to be and however God calls yeah. me to walk in it. I mean, ultimately, because it is not freeing to anybody for you to get up in the pulpit and look like everybody else mm-hmm. or be a carbon copy. That's why when we have to wear black and white, all the black and white should look different. It should be expressed differently so that when the people who are coming looking for Jesus can see the Jesus in you in a way that relates to them. Okay. Because I know for a long time I saw different women who were not necessarily in ordained ministry, but they were faithfully serving their churches. And they, I like to say they dress like um, Whitney Houston in The Preacher's Wife, (laughs) in the movie (laughs) The Preacher's Wife. And I said, if I got to look like that to be saved, then I, I know I'm going straight to hell because I can't do that. That was when I walked into pain and I saw a bishop. That was the first time I saw womanhood on display like that in the context of the church. Thank you for joining us this week on the Kerygma Chronicles. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Just look for at Dr. Natasha Gadsden. If you love the show, please rate and subscribe so that we can continue to bring you fresh content. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next week.